to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome to another episode, our very first of 2014, of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty. As my wonderful voiceover guy mentioned, I am your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, if you will, Mark Clare. And look, in order to ultimately, you know, achieve our stated goal to advance the ideas of liberty, we have to find new ways to communicate these ideas to people. You know, if we just sit around talking to each other, it doesn't really do much good. And luckily for us, the free market has provided some amazing technologies by which we can do so, by which we can communicate with each other. I mean, I barely know anything about web design, and yet I have this website. LinesofLiberty.com. Thanks to our good friend Tommy John at TommyJohnStudios.com. Be sure to check his work out. He designed our wonderful website. I barely knew anything about, you know, hosting a radio show, and yet all I really had to do was go buy a microphone, plug it in, hook it up to my laptop. Now, thanks to some help from our our editor, John Dobbert, we got a fine listening uh, experience for you here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. So, you know, all it takes is some technology, a little drive, and maybe a friend or two to help you out and get going. The division of labor. You know, a very important thing for any economy. We all need to keep coming up with new ways to spread our ideas, new ways to communicate. And my guest today has a project aiming to do just that. He is a distinguished fellow at the Foundation for Economic Freedom. He is the publisher at Laissez-Faire Books. And he is the CEO of a brand new project called Liberty.me. Jeffrey Tucker, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. It's really great to be here. I think it's my first time. Am I right about that? It absolutely is. And uh, congratulations are due because it is actually, you're actually the first guest of our podcast for 2014. So we're very, very <laughs> And I know your good friend, uh, Stefan Kinsella, a good friend and fellow Texan, was our very first guest uh, in the history of the show last year. So kind of appropriate. Oh. Yeah, he is a good friend. You know, uh, we talk about everything. I, I think we more or less agree on, on a lot of things, but, uh, you know, that doesn't really, uh, mean much to say we agree, you know, because, because there's always new issues and new, new things you want to talk about. So we ended up talking every day or every couple of days just about whatever, whatever's going on and sort of bounce ideas off each other. And we learn from each other. It's a good thing to have a colleague and a friend like that. Absolutely. And that's kind of what's important to any movement is just continuing to discuss the ideas with each other and, uh, you know, continuing to advance them. Because how else are we going to figure this stuff out if we don't do it? Yeah, I think you're right. Not one single mind, you know, is capable of sort of sort of generating all truth or something like that. You know, we we really do need each other and we feed off each other. I was thinking about this the other day because somebody was really being severely critical of me the other day and it really got me thinking really hard you know like well what's wrong with this criticism or maybe what's right about Mm -hmm. it quite often I think our benefactors are strongest critics in a a sense you know uh, just because they help they agitate the mind a little bit and out of that agitation and out of annoyance sometimes comes your most creative thought Right. I think we're often going to get some of the most, I don't know, I don't want to say legitimate, all, all criticism can be legitimate, but some of the more you know well thought out criticisms from fellow libertarians or people that already kind of see things mostly our way. But, you know, that's probably where you're going to get some of your best criticisms on the some, you know, kind of the nitpicking, I guess, what some people might call it. Yeah. And it's something of an art. Um, and one thing that's really good at the way social media has matured, I think people are somehow getting a slightly better disagreeing, but being civil at the same time and accepting 
interesting that that not everybody has to agree on everything uh, because I mean that's that's what makes the social media world function. I mean, of course, there are always flare-ups and things like that, but but mostly I think it's helping helping to train people to get a little more civil about disagreements that they have with each other. And that's good, I think. Absolutely. And it's definitely an art. It's definitely something to work on. Because when I first started kind of coming into libertarian ideas and thinking that way, it would sometimes you get into a conversation and it just hurts your brain when people don't see things the way you are. And you kind of just want to lash out and then call them stupid and all this stuff. Really, that's not going to get you anywhere. So. I know. This actually happened to me yesterday, actually. I mean, I woke up slightly embarrassed about it because I'm usually fairly light and I'm able to, you know, fairly good humor and that sort of thing. But then somebody went after me yesterday for, I gave a podcast in on Rand Paul in which I kind of just gave my honest feeling about it you know I think we all have some some ambivalence you know about him I think you know, we admire when he does good things and but you know, I don't really have high expectations for any any politician I sometimes feel like people are a little too hard on him you know so I'm trying to navigate this in a podcast especially since you know he's a friend of mine and um, wow you know there's this guy who just went after me and said I had endorsed him and really got under my skin and so I kind of, you know, we had this flame war, you know, and now, then I woke up this morning kind of embarrassed about it. I thought, you know, I could have handled that a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard when something turns into feeling like a personal attack. Like, you know, suddenly uh, you say something nice about Rand Paul, and now you're a, you're an evil status warmonger. Suddenly it's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it's hard, it's hard to be civil maybe when that happens. That's right. There's always an implication that somehow I want a job or I'm secretly on the payroll or something. You know, it's all very strange, you know. <laughs> you know, this is just ri- ridiculous. When we, uh, you know, we've had a few articles criticizing certain positions of his, and then, you know, we get accused of being secret progressive operatives in the libertarian movement. So it kind of goes both oh, ways. There's right. always a conspiracy yeah. theorist out there. Is it your opinion that these political topics are particularly prone to sort of these explosive sort of flame wars and things? Well, sure. I mean, I think that's kind of the way we're trained about politics from the beginning, that it it is this kind of personal thing where we're supposed to get inflamed and choose a, a left or a right side and, and then go at each other. That's kind of the way the media promotes it. That's kind of how we're trained from birth to get, to get into arguments about it all the time. So, sure, I think that's it's kind of been ingrained in us and hopefully, you know, through social media, through the stuff you're doing, the stuff I'm doing, hopefully we can make things just a little more civil and a little less about I'm so right and you're so wrong and more about, okay, let's actually discuss the reasons we believe I'm so right, you're so wrong. Exactly. You know, and this is something I'm thinking about all the time is I'm kind of, I'm building this integrated platform for, for liberty-minded individuals to kind of communicate and publish and receive information and help crowdsource ideas for taking non-political approaches to freeing our lives. And it's a concern that I have, like, well, we're, we're going to have to foster a kind of culture of tolerance, actually, because... You know, all these libertarians that I'm looking at already, we're going to have thousands of members. It's going to be interesting to see how well they get along, you know, and, you know, when do you have to kind of just toss people out because they just, you know, are so unruly or... I'm hoping that people can learn to have different points of view and learn from each other and not feel like they always have to convince the other person of their particular argument, you know? Right. There is a lot of that. You almost have to feel like you won the argument or so that someone else lost it when really it's really should just be about shaping each other's views over time and trying to present right. kind of logical, passionate viewpoints and whatever the best way to do that is. I definitely want to talk to you more about Liberty.me yep. and your project. But before that, I kind of, I'm a little curious. I asked this of all my guests. How did you first become interested in libertarian ideas and how did you first become involved with the Liberty movement? You know, if I trace it far back enough, you know, I, I think I land somewhere as a junior in high school, you know, bumping into a nonfiction work by Rand and uh, thinking I was a philosopher, you know, within a matter of days. 
<laughs> there's that. Um, and then, you know, years later, I think I rediscovered sort of the intellectual world in general as, as a college student in economics. I got really frustrated with my economics classes because I was very uh, optimistic about what economics could teach us about the world. But so much of time in economics classes was spent on sort of pointless mathematics and not really asking the bigger questions. Right. Stuff about aggregate right. demand and all this stuff, and you're like, what, what, is, what is all this? Yeah, right. Where's the big picture? Where's the big meaning? You know, and I wondered. And so then I bumped into a book by Hans Inholtz, and I was really intrigued by it because he, he really talked about economics as if human beings were the decision makers and, and the ones affected most profoundly by policy. And he integrated sort of cultural uh, analysis and social theory into his economics, and it was all about human beings. You know, I thought, well, this is very cool. What kind of economics is this? And I, so I traced, you know, back in the day, you couldn't really just do an internet search, you know. Right. So I was really happy to have, you know, found found the books in the library. And so I just began to read, really, Mises had this just profound effect on me. And, uh, that that was it for me. I just I fell in love with Mises's worldview and his passion, and you know w what a dissident intellectual he was, and I just kind of wanted to be part of that. Oh, I, I fell in love with the idea of human liberty um, at at some point, and there was no turning back. Now, of course, in the early days, you know, you you start off as uh, believing that you can have limited government, right? And but I, I gave that up after a while because I realized that. First of all, there was, it's not really anything a government can do that market can't do better. Anything that needs to be done, right? There's a lot of things governments do that you don't want. They can the market do a whole to do, lot like, that the market doesn't do, like you know, throw people right. in jail for uh, you know having an herb in their house or stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's slaughtering millions and you know that sort of thing. Right. Nothing we really um, want so I, to do. That. Right. So I became a kind of like like a dedicated anarchist. The other thing I realized was that. You know, one of the problems with this sort of minarchist worldview is that they imagine in a way that they can control the state. Like, if they want the state to only do one, two, and three, that the state will somehow go along with that. And there's a real disconnect there between what you wish for and what the state's actually going to do in real life. So uh, one of the cases for anarchism, to me, is just just simply for people to recognize their powerlessness over the state. Like once you create the state, it will pretty much do whatever it damn well pleases in its own interest. And no minarchist intellectual out there can have anything to say about that, you know. So that's an important observation, really. I, th I think of minarchists as their own kind of miniature central planners in a way. You know, they, they know exactly what the state's supposed to do, and they're going to make it make the state do that. And that's just... That's just unrealistic and ridiculous. Do you so. think that uh, even in a, a quote unquote, you know, free or private property society, we might still, you know, see the, the voluntary creation of things that might resemble governments, like on a small level, like say if you have people that own 50 adjoining private properties, they all get together, they say, hey, let's chip in for some, you know, private services or, or whatever, police services or a court system, and they just decide to do that. Do you see that that is just as bad and evil as, you know, a, what someone else might call a, a bit, you know, more tyrannical I don't, state? Or? I don't think so. I think it's actually, um, the scenario you're describing, it would typically work like this. Like a single developer would buy a huge plot of land and, and put 50 adjacent properties all together under a single covenantal code to kind of increase their property value. Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as entirely a voluntary creation. I mean, it's, it's in everybody's interest. I mean, you might get annoyed at the rules from time to time, but mostly 
what's important about that is there's agreement on what the purpose of the community is. And the purpose of the community is to enhance the value of the property as much as possible. So nobody's really being taxed. Everybody's kind of entering into this group agreement. It's the difference between voluntary and non-voluntary. It's the difference between people coming in and saying, we are the government, you live here, you follow our rules, as opposed to, you know, people voluntarily signing up for a group of rules or or, or that kind of thing. Hey, here's another example. I was just thinking about this morning because it's intriguing. I mean, you're seeing all this like big political debates about about gay marriage and stuff like that. Well, what what if we made it a really strong priority to just get government out of marriage entirely? Like government has nothing to say about it. No courts marry anybody. The justices have nothing to do with marriage. I mean, just get rid of it. You know, get it completely out of the state's hands. Then you can begin to think, well, what would happen? You know, what would happen to the institution of marriage? And it's pretty clear what would happen. Uh, you would have, well, just as now, you have many, many churches, you know, that are involved in, in deciding, you know, who can get married, who isn't, who is married, who isn't married. But you, but you would have other kinds of associations doing this. I'm sure there would be many different forces in society that are kind of in charge of overseeing you know, what unions look like and what are the rules that govern them, what happens when they break apart, you know, what are the formats of the prenups and this sort of thing. I mean, in other words, marriage would reinvent itself um, on a completely voluntary uh, uh, basis without having the, the government involvement. And I just think that would be a much more peaceful solution than what's going on now. I get really tired of these cultural wars, you know, uh, between the religious right and, you know, the gay rights activists and everything. It's all, it's all kind of tedious. I mean, we could end all that immediately just by giving, getting government out of marriage completely. It doesn't mean that marriage goes away. It just means it becomes less of a, a source of social division. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And it seems like it's just another kind of example when issues like that are pushed to the forefront in the media, in the political debate. And really, that's not really the stuff we need to be arguing about because all you have to do, like you said, get the government out of it. You'd have some churches that won't marry, you know, won't marry gay couples because they probably don't believe in it. Well, that's fine because you don't need to be in that church. You can, you don't need to be even in a church. You can maybe, there would be all sorts of private contractual marriages and, and that kind of thing that aren't even religion based. So, that's right. Everybody would be able to do whatever they want. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like the Catholic Church isn't going to marry two Baptists and right. and agree to have them be part of their their court system, you know. So yeah, you get this kind of perfect unity between the institutions in a society and people's uh, desire for certain kinds of services. Uh, you know, they, I think that's definitely what what would happen. And that doesn't sound implausible to me. In fact, I was just thinking this morning that. Maybe, I mean, I think libertarians have talked about this marriage issue, and I think very plausibly they've said that government should get out of marriage, but they haven't really made that big a deal out of it, really. I've been thinking more and more about writing a piece, a practical piece, actually explaining how this will work and trying to push this agenda up front. I think it's an, I think it's an important one, really. I mean, government wasn't even involved in marriage um, this past it, century, really. I mean, it, or pretty much, pretty much. I mean, I think the first government that got involved in it was post-revolutionary France in the late 18th century. But yeah, 19th century America, you know, it was just churches that married people, or people just, you know, common law or whatever. And then, and then suddenly, yeah, basically in this century, you have this sort of nationalization of an institution. I don't have anything in front of me, but I do recall reading, uh, you know, a little bit that how they used to use um, marriage licenses to just to deny marriages between blacks and whites. And that's why they 
kind of invented marriage licenses so they could now decide who can get married and who can not. Oh, that's really interesting. I remember I read a book by Richard Posner some years ago, but I have to dig that up and go through that. But that's very, very interesting. It's kind of similar to uh, gun licenses. There used to not be gun Uh licenses. And then states in the South, you know, started saying, oh, we have to have licenses for guns. And anybody can get the license. Don't worry. But, you know, of course, when when certain black people might sign up for the license, oh, they they all get denied. The white people don't get denied. Suddenly you have kind of a de facto gun control. It's kind of a similar thing. So many laws and restrictions in this country's cultural experience and political history are are driven by these kind of segregationist impulses. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting when you look back at the history of it, whether it's, you know, minimum wages, you know, had that same origin, this desire to kind of exclude people with almost a eugenics uh, kind of desire to get rid of people, cut them out of the labor force so they'll sort of die off and go away. And many other regulations, very interesting about marriage, but certainly labor unions were were the same kind of thing. And I heard a really good lecture the other day at a Students for Liberty conference I was at that talked about the role of jazz in sort of breaking down some of these barriers. Like when jazz first came along, quite often local governments would pass laws that said things like, you can't have dancing and food in the same establishment. (laughs) And one of the, the driving forces, this is, the fear was that basically blacks and whites were coming together to dance, and they had to had to get rid of it. Yeah, right. But it's a good example of how how uh, kind of cultural evolution and progress, and I would include here technological evolution and progress, has this effect of kind of breaking down government barriers. I think we're seeing a lot of that in our own times. You know, that the more the private sector innovates, the more it's kind of uh, causing the state's grip, you know, to sort of loosen. I mean, they're trying to. You know, panic more and more. I mean, you see this in the area of intellectual property, certainly, you know. I think we're going to see copyright in you know, five, ten years when it's not even going to be effectively relevant for anything. It's in, increasingly less relevant. But it's true in many other areas. I mean, uh, the internet has broken down the communication systems. We're seeing, uh, even more and more the private provision of things like energy. You know, with more and more corporations just sort of generating their own power, it's fascinating because they're fed up with the sort of. Wait, are you trying systems. to suggest that we can get even things like energy without the government? Jeff, this, is <laughs> this is crazy stuff you're talking about here. <laughs> Isn't it funny? You know, in the 20th century, there is this widespread myth that everything worth getting, you know, could only be provided by government. Like, like they really, you know, you know, you think about the, the whole space program. You know, originated with this perception that somehow. Uh, the private sector just couldn't do anything and that it took government to do really cool stuff. I mean, nowadays, I mean, the governments just can't do, I think there's a widespread understanding that governments are mostly incompetent. If you want something done well, you have to turn to the private sector. You know, this is one of the cool things about living now is versus like in the 1950s, I think. And speaking of emerging technology and new ways to do things, that's kind of a good segue to your project, Liberty.me. Well, uh, yeah, it represents kind of the culmination of everything I've ever wanted to do, essentially. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful for me. So describe to everyone out there, for people that have maybe never even heard of this project before, from the ground up, what exactly is Liberty.me and then how do you kind of see it as a, a useful tool for the Liberty movement? Well, I came uh, you know, into this believing that it was possible to uh, essentially move into a kind of digital space, you know, in the same sense that people, you know, moved west, you know, in the old days, on uh, the 19th century, that we need to be sort of moving north, in a, in a sense, you know, to the cloud, and create sort of 
geographically non-contiguous spaces for communication and community formation, networking, and publishing. And I hadn't seen anything like this in the Liberty space. So starting this last uh, spring, I'd been thinking about this for years, you know, after my experiences at uh, Mises and at Laissez Faire. And you actually helped build the Mises website, is that, is that correct? Yeah, I built it from uh, about 1996 all the way through. I mean, you know, just kind of dumping every text I could on there and seeing the possibilities of community and seeing how the influence of it. I, I just wanted to see, I wanted to ramp that up, that experience up. And Laissez Faire had an experience with the commercial model and I was really excited to see how that kind of improves the quality of content. So I began to dream about this Liberty Me thing uh, this past spring and I mapped together a business plan. Basically, the first level thing I wanted to provide was a space for liberty-minded individuals to publish that was really, really beautiful with just a turnkey kind of system, kind of like Blogger, but a much more beautiful template within a space that was ready-made for you know everything you wanted to do. Because I, I had a lot of friends that were working on building their own websites, and they get very frustrated at it, you know. <laughs> um, and it's not just that they lack the sort of technological wherewithal to build something that they really want. The other problem is that they have a hard time getting an audience. So I thought, well, what if we kind of bring a lot of people into a single piece of real estate where there's a built-in audience for their work, you know, so the people are actually reading what they're writing. Because like right now, you can get a blogger account or WordPress account or, you know, go over, go over to any number of these kind of websites. The problem is, you can post 42 times a day for three years and, you know, get five readers. I mean, what are you going to do about that? Sure. I mean, we started with a blogger website back in 2011. A couple of friends of mine just said, hey, let's, we're already having these conversations in emails. So it's like, hey, why don't we just toss this stuff on the internet? And, uh, I'm no web, you know, techno whiz at all, but, you know, I, we could, we got that together. And then, um, you know, the only, the only reason we have a pretty spiffy looking website now is because a friend of mine just says, hey, you guys got to do something better than this. Cause, so he actually just went and built us a whole nice, awesome website that we have now at lionsliberty.com. But, um, right. I mean, certainly that's the most difficult part for people that have the ideas and want to put it out there, but that's, that's the kind of the extent of their knowledge. And it's not that easy to learn how to build a website from the ground up. No, it's not. And it can be expensive and it can be demoralizing that you build it and you just feel like nobody's coming. So mm -hmm. I felt like if, if we kind of uh, pool our efforts together, we could actually have a really beautiful space where people could go and get a wide range of opinions on, uh, within the Liberty space. And then also people would have a built in audience and we could basically, you know, pool our efforts. And because I know that I know because this is going to be my sole publishing space. I'm going to be tuckered liberty about me and that's where you're going to find all my stuff every member gets their own web space like this and i and i'm developing a karma system so that if i get to the front page it's only because people vote me there so that's kind of neat and i, I put that together with a full-blown social media facebook style functionality which actually is, it's even better than facebook um not in competition with facebook but uh, integrated with it also there's a larger rationale besides just creating a, a publishing space and a full-blown social network um, I became convinced of a kind of philosophical turn that affected me over the last few years. And it really comes down to this idea of doing liberty rather than just thinking about it. You know, looking for practical ways to sort of break down the system a little bit in your own life. 
you know, I started with my whole series on uh, household hacks, you know, like here's a way to hack your detergent that actually gets your clothes clean and, get, and gets around government regulations. Here's a way to hack your shower head. Here's a way to turn up your water pressure, preserve your, your plumbing in your house and so on. Here's a good dishwasher that you can cause it to be unhacked, you know, from government uh, water restrictions and so on. But then that kind of pointed to a larger philosophical shift in my own mind, which is that we need to be doing things that take liberty into our own hands. And I think don't think that we can count on the government just to go away. I think we have to kind of push it away or at least go around it, you know, make an end run around the state. So that's that's the philosophical orientation of Liberty Meets. So we spent a lot of time on building the site, um, kind of breaking down every conceivable area of, you know, hacks for liberty and parsing them out in terms of, you know, um, migration and expatriation and uh, peer-to-peer lending, uh, transportation hacks, you know, going through everything you can you can possibly imagine, and I, I kind of put together a gigantic subject-based site structure, and started piling in all the all the plugins and all the stuff. And I've got my best code geeks working on this right now. So uh, the idea is to, to kind of have a full universe of practical ways forward for for libertarians that doesn't involve just sitting around grousing about the government all the time, <laughs> but that you're actually doing things. To make yourself freer in your own life and then, you know, build the institutions that are going to replace the state, you know, as it continues to decay and become less and less relevant for our lives so that we have a full-blown, robust social system in the cloud that we've all built together. So that's the vision. And it's it's outlandish. It's crazy. But I think... One thing we've learned in the digital age is that we need to get more imaginative about the possibilities because uh, there are all kinds of miracles we can cause to happen through our combined efforts. And I just want to see us start doing that, living on the cutting edge a little bit more than we have been. Not just, you know, these one-way nonprofit websites, all of which are fine, but I want a real community of communication innovation. That's the goal. Now, Jeffrey, as we discussed uh, in the beginning of this interview, you know, it, you can't do anything on the Internet as a libertarian without taking a little criticism. So I just want to run through a couple kind of criticisms that I've come across, you know, when I've been on the Internet about your project, Liberty Me coming up. And, you know, one of them is that I hear a lot, you know, what, what exactly can this provide that isn't already provided by current social media like Facebook, you know, Google Hangouts, Skype. We already have all these, like, technologies. So what exactly does Liberty.me do that is a step above and beyond that? Is it really just kind of this the, the sleekness of the package? Is it kind of, you know, the fact that you know you'll have a lot of eyes on there and we can all put it in one place? Those are all, those are all important points. But I think more than that, I think it's the focus. I think Facebook is pretty darn diffuse. I also find Facebook, you know, just, you know, unsearchable in in some way. You know, things just are so ephemeral. You know, they appear there and they disappear there. Um, you know, the fights, the even among your own friends, you don't know who is what. And, you know, uh, people are actually slightly cautious about posting on Facebook. Whereas I think if you kind of put together a piece of real estate that's entirely devoted to the topic of human liberty, you're going to be much more likely to develop more intense friendships. And like I said, I don't intend for it to replace Facebook. I want it to actually be have a different purpose. You know, there are many, many special groups out there that have their own social networks for their own purposes, like, 
you know, if you have a German Shepherd dog, you can go to a, a social network out there that's focused entirely on, on the German Shepherds, you know, and get to know people who talk about this so you don't bother your Facebook friends with your endless prattling on about your dog, although people do that all the time. Guilty <laughs> so, as charged. <laughs> right. So, uh, so within, within Liberty Me, then it really, you know, focuses the topic over to what it is that's most important to us. The publishing space, you know, people can go to Blogger, they can go to other places, but I think, you know, with Liberty.me, you're going to have an auto built an audience, you're going to get a lot of high traffic, similar to what Forbes.com does for its own bloggers, but there's not going to be any gatekeepers. That's This is a really important consideration. People need freedom to publish their thoughts, and Liberty Me, you know, there's not going to be any gatekeepers. We've got a comment system, and, and that's really great. I'm curious, like, how do you mm-hmm. structure kind of the sign up? Like, can anybody just kind of start go on there and publishing? I mean, say like a communist go on and, and create like a ten reasons why communism is better than libertarian piece. I don't, I don't know why they would, but you yeah, know, how, how does I, that work? You know, it's funny because people have raised this point with me. Like, what are you going to do about quality control? What are you going to do about content? What do people say heretical things? And my whole experience in the digital space is that if you create a good culture and open it up rather than close it up, get rid of the controls rather than try to control, that um, things settle down and take a more brilliant, you know, interesting course than they otherwise would. So I'm, I'm kind of trusting that the subject of human liberty itself will sort of drive the content, you know, always upwards and make it always focused without, without any controls. I say that just from based on personal experience. I really believe in an open model. I don't believe in, in controls, and I don't believe in gatekeepers. I, I think if uh, the more freedom you have to do what you want to do, the, the higher the quality of the results. And that's going to be true with liberty.me. I think we need the social network. It's really important. In terms of content, which is the sort of third piece of this, we have commissioned about 50 different guides on a whole series of subjects. And yeah, a lot of the information you can get here and there, but I've employed the best experts on any number of subjects to write like definitive guides to things. So, you know, if, if you're coming in as a member, you not only get publishing space, you get social network, but you also get these really, you know, really well-written things. Like I was looking at one today. It's like how to deal with the cops. And it's the best single guide I've ever seen. It's like the one monograph you need to read on how to deal with cops. You know, I've got Bitcoin guides, I've got guides on education, on family life, I mean, just on so many different topics. One on the Free State Project, you know, should you move there? What should you do when you get there? And putting them all in one place with a single format with, with this well-curated, you know, how to deal with college debt. And I think that's that's a real point of value. Again, this is applied liberty. We're not talking so much about theory. I think theory is good, but I'm really more interested in practical aspects of how to improve your own life. I think this is the way forward for us. And I don't see any other space out there really dealing with this. So there's a lot of value here. But other people have questioned the business model, you know, like, well, this is going to be a, a walled city. It's really not. I mean, in fact, it's just the opposite. Everybody who's a member is going to reach a larger audience than they ever have. I mean, most content will be entirely free. But the purpose of, of making it a subscription is to make sure that everybody there is serious about it. But there's another thing that's really important from the producer point of view. I want to be personally responsible to every customer. I mean, I don't want to look at, at people as the way Facebook looks at its users. So, I mean, we are content providers so that Facebook as a corporation can get ad click-throughs. I mean, <laughs> basically, we think it's a free service. No, it's, it's, it's more like it's free for them and costly for us, you know? Um, so I wanted to get rid of that sort of 
advertising-based corporate structure and create a direct relationship between the website owners and producers, which is, you know, the company Liberty.me and its actual customers. So we're just constantly daily accountable directly. So every subscriber then has a very strong sort of stake in things and we, you know, feel that daily competitive heat and that sense of, of, of relentless service. A business like this can only work if you, as a producer, are like slavishly devoted to the customer. And the only way to do that is by making sure there's a direct relationship between the producer and the consumer, not intermediaries like, like advertisers or large donors, you know, in the case of nonprofits. Now, can people share their published content like outside of the Liberty.me community? Let's say I, I sign up and I write an awesome article that I want I want my mom to see, but she's not a crazy libertarian like me, so she's not signed up for Liberty.me. So how like how does that work? How can we get kind of that content out to other people and kind of grow yeah. the movement? Well, every time you press publish, you've got a choice uh, to make it uh, displayable within the community, make it just private so that anybody with a link can see it, um, but otherwise it's not searchable, or make it as, as public as possible. Cause so there will be a, like a public aspect to the site yeah, that anybody can just come on and see yeah. it. Okay. Our SEO is going to be absolutely amazing, so if you publish... You know, Google's going to be crawling your article immediately, and it's going to fly out to billions of people instantly if you set it that way. So it allows people to get a larger audience than they ever otherwise would with their little Facebooky thing. Facebook is in charge of who sees your content and who isn't. Essentially, they make the decision. You have nothing to do with it. Oh yeah, when we'll post something, we'll see. You know, um, you know, X number of people saw this post, which is like a very small fraction of the number of people that I know are viewing or can view our page. So they yeah. they don't you don't you don't see everything. No, and so within Liberty, I mean, if you go public with anything you post, then it's going to be available to the whole world instantly. So uh, this is a, a way to, re- to reach a mass audience. As you can see, this is a gigantic space. Right? I'm talking about basically building Manhattan in the sky. So it's hard to sort of um, sum up everything that's going on, but I've noticed that people have had this, gotten various bad impressions. Like I've had people write me and go, well, is this, a, like I mentioned to you, a walled city? Well, it's exactly the opposite, actually. I don't think it was a walled city. I see it as a, as a global outreach tool, you know, more than anything else. And I would like to see the writings of serious young libertarians actually reach a mass audience and not just get stuck in their little Facebook worlds. In uh, one of your promos for Liberty.me, you said, politics and government are dreadfully boring, even soul-killing. But, uh, you know, isn't libertarianism essentially a political movement? I mean, we're, we're kind of discussing um, the level of collective violence that should or should not be used on individuals. Now, of course, most libertarians take the stance that level should be either very, very little or zero. But nonetheless, is this not kind of a conversation that takes place in the political arena, wouldn't you say? It's a kind of a paradox, isn't it? Because uh, libertarians are very political people. But what are we working towards? We're looking towards a society that is not ruled by politics. We want a completely depoliticized environment. So that's kind of by itself a problem. We tend to be politically minded, but then we want to get rid of politics. So that, that creates a kind of a paradox. And my big concern about too much focus on politics is that it actually leads people to despair to think that they have to change the political system if, if society is ever going to change, that we have to cause the government to change its ways or uh, we'll never get human liberty. 
the problem with that is it's very bad news that none of us actually control the state. I mean, we, there's nothing you and I can do to cause the government to go away or even even shrink, <laughs> even slightly, really. I mean, the only thing that I think is going to change that is kind of the other way around. Instead of reforming the government to change the society, it's kind of got to come the other way. We have to change yeah. the way people view society, people view you know how to deal with each other, and you know hopefully that is what will change the nature of you know, whatever government right. we have. And also, we need to become more sort of disobedient in a way as citizens. You know, we need to be uh, actively involved in sort of disrupting the status quo. And that's why I said that you know, politics is boring. I mean, you sit around talking about what the politicians should not and should be doing um, night after night. It takes too many evenings, as I said. Uh, the problem is we don't control the system. And I think I think people get kind of bored and realize this after a while and go, well, God, you know, what the hell is libertarianism? It doesn't really, there's not anything. It's about as relevant to my life as arguing what kind of a dog my neighbor ought to get. You know, well, that's not actually my decision to make, really. And that, uh, the state, and the state, it's a very important thing. Libertarians need to understand something about the state. It, it has its own interests and it doesn't actually care what you and I think. And when you realize that, you know, it's kind of a shocking revelation. I mean, we were raised in a system where we, we believe that as a democracy, the government's all about responding to our interests. Well, guess what? It's a lie. It's not true. So the question is, what then should libertarians do if we can't actually change anything at the center? And I, I think there's a ton we can do. We can disobey, we can disrupt, we can innovate, and we can go around the system and make sure that we uh, stay as free as possible as individuals. And this is the main source of freedom in our time, or maybe all time, is through private sector innovation, we're able to outrun and outwit the government and stay just one step ahead, you know, all the time. And, and eventually, I think this apparatus that's been built up over the 20th century, this sort of gigantic Leviathan state that's all pervasive, is going to become less and less relevant. Uh, a good example of that is like 3D printing. Okay, so, you know, all throughout the 20th century, the government's all been about controlling the physical world, patents, regulations, taxes, you name it. Well, in a world of 3D printing where everybody's got, everybody becomes a maker, you know, and you can download anything you want and make it happen within your own house, this whole apparatus of command and control just becomes completely irrelevant. It's the same thing with monetary system. With Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, you can make an end run around national national politics, national monetary affairs through technology. And you put enough of these technologies together, what you see is a kind of an emergent state that is basically ruling the last century, but not ruling the next one. And then it becomes less and less relevant to our lives. And this is this is my dream. And I it's it's not not just a dream. I think we're living in this reality in times when the government is really just breaking down. It's it's going to become less and less relevant. It's going to still be mean and still wicked, but um, with enough innovation and creativity, we might find that it just has less and less to do with the daily affairs of our lives. And Jeffrey, you're certainly one of the probably probably one of the most optimistic people I come across on the internet in terms of kind of the, our little internet libertarian community. So why why are, exactly are you so incredibly optimistic? Is it really like you're talking about here, like the new technologies emerging that can get around the state altogether, or do you think it's kind of just also you see people's attitudes changing in such a way? I mean, you've obviously been involved in this movement a long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really it comes down to the one central insight: it's that human beings don't like to live in cages, and they're always going to be trying to figure out a way out. <laughs> and, 
and that's always true, but but the trick is to convince them that they live in a cage, right? Now, well, that's true, but I mean, these days it's ever more obvious. I mean, the state systems are breaking down. It's monetary system, it's fiscal system, it's regulatory system. Uh, the the war on drugs has become a joke. People are sick of their public schools. I mean, Obamacare has already destroyed the medical system from the center. You know, in so many areas, the government system is breaking down. I, I think it's important to have a broader historical perspective here, remembering that. The age of central planning didn't really begin until about 100 years ago. You know, it was an unprecedented experiment in, in the history of humanity that the state would come along and just, you know, run our lives inside and out from top to bottom and manage the whole world. And that experiment has really created fantastic calamity. And I think it's just completely unsustainable. We're living in the last days of that. It's a brief moment in history, if you think about it, the sort of era of the total state, which wasn't just in Russia or in Germany and Italy and Spain. It's right here in the U.S., probably more so here in the U.S. than anywhere else. And we're coming off a century where, you know, governments kill more people than probably in the history of the world. I'm not looking at any numbers here, but, you know, between all these world wars and nuclear weapons and genocides, it's certainly a... It was a big century for government, I guess. If you yeah, uh, that's right. if you're on the side of government, it was a great century for government. But hopefully, we're this century will be a little different. We'll see. Well, you know, that's that. that's the thing. I mean, you know, if you look at Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he talks about how there's a consensus in favor of a certain model of thinking or doing science, or in this case, running society. But that model begins to break down when there are too many anomalies that take place. And, and in our time, that's exactly what we're seeing. Too many anomalies. The government is going to get rid of drugs. Well, drugs are more pervasive than ever. The government is going to get rid of file sharing. Well, file sharing is the way the world runs. You know, the government is going to give us cheap universal medical care. Exactly the opposite happens. Try to create, you know, universal literacy. It's, you know, utterly failed. So when you have too many anomalies entering into a, a consensus, that consensus begins to break down, and you, you enter into a period of paradigmatic chaos. And that's where we're headed. It doesn't mean that there's a new consensus for liberty yet, but I think we're going to get there. What matters is that we break down the existing consensus, and that's, that's pretty much what's happening. You know, government has never been less popular, like in, on record in the history of humanity, than it is right now. Of course, we don't have polls dating back to the 4th century, but all the polls we have indicate that government has never been uh, more unpopular, not just here, but all over the world. I, we're living in the middle of not only a fantastic technological revolution, the likes of which we've never seen before. But we're also living in the middle of a kind of political revolution against government, not just here, but but all over the world. And we just need to seize this opportunity. This is why I want to do something crazy. That's why I wanted to do Liberty Me. I wanted to wanted to really step out and do something just completely outlandish, uh, insanely risky, and you know, call on every technology and every workable tool I knew of from my experience to create a new space for us to kind of push the revolution forward. That's what it's all about. Well, Jeffrey, I think you got the right idea. I think more libertarians out there got to keep doing stuff that seems outlandish and crazy and thinking of new ways to get these <laughs> ideas out there because that's how we're going to do it. That's how we're going to get people's attention. We're not going to do it by being dry and boring and just kind of, you know, writing our little blog posts and not, you know, not sharing yeah. them in the best way possible. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the Lions Liberty Podcast, Jeffrey. We'll definitely have to have you on again sometime. Um, before we let you go, where can people find more info about Liberty.me, about your Indiegogo campaign, yeah, and yeah. Uh, everything else you'd like to promote as far yeah, as your you, social media? And sure, all. sure. So you can go to the Liberty.me right now and click through the Indiegogo campaign. If you want, you can watch my video where I jump in the lake, you know, in my suit. That, was, that water was 35 degrees, by the way. I don't know if you watched that video. <laughs> yeah, it, did. it was It was just insane. But uh, so right now what we're offering is, uh, you know, a large uh, benefit packages for people people that sort of pre-subscribe and get in early, you'll get a much better deal. And also you'll be you're very well treated and get, you know, Liberty Me uh, martini glasses and bow ties and all there sorts go. of other goodies in there. Well, you got to have a Jeffrey Tucker classic bow tie. That's right. And get invited to all kind of parties and be, be part of the kind of the cool set. So we're more than halfway done with our campaign uh, already. Actually, we're almost two-thirds done if you, if you include Bitcoin contributions there. So we've been very pleased at how it goes. So I'd love for people to go there, sign up, and, and give it a try. I think we're probably going to be opening... I'm wanting to say spring, but I think March 1st is is a pretty safe um, kind of uh, uh, target point. So anyway, go over there, check it out. I'd uh, love to join you in our new little world. Jeffrey Tucker, thanks a bunch. Take care. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. And be sure to check out Liberty.me, and we will be back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, and thanks to my boy, Glenn Jacobs, there for reminding you all that you are indeed listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Glenn Jacobs, of course, was on back in episode six, also known as Kane. If you're a wrestling fan, if you're a WWE fan, be sure to check that out. And thanks to Jeffrey Tucker for being our first guest of 2014. Now, look, I'll be honest. I only know what I know about Liberty.me from what I've heard basically just from Jeffrey Tucker and from his promos and from checking out everything he's got over at the Indiegogo campaign. I I don't have a clue if Liberty.me will be a, a complete flop or if it'll be the greatest thing to ever happen to the Liberty movement. But, you know, the thing is, Jeffrey Tucker has no idea either. Now, he certainly feels confident enough to put up his own time and stake his name, his reputation on this project, so i got to think he's got a pretty good plan in place, and it certainly sounds like he does. But, that, guys, that's the whole point of entrepreneurship. It's the whole point of starting a new project. It takes risk. No one knows how it's all going to turn out. you got to stake your time and your money and your effort and your passion into something before you even know the result. How crazy is that? But that's how freedom works. <laughs> that's the good thing, because you only get the benefits from taking the risk. It's the opposite of this, you know, crony capitalist government mentality we have, where if you take a risk and you mess up, if you're a big corporation or a big bank, the only punishment is, uh, well, nothing. You get you get a bailout. You get some money, maybe a little public scorn, but certainly doesn't put them out of business. 
And if I mess up and I ruin my website, it's going to be gone. And Lions of Liberty is going to be out of business. And I'm the only one who has to suffer. I'm not going to get a bailout on the Lions of Liberty podcast if it if it just crashes and burns. And Jeffrey Tucker won't get a bailout on uh, Liberty.me if that crashes and burns. But we got to keep churning out new projects. Keep churning out new ideas. Keep finding new ways to communicate with other people. Now, I had no idea our little blog-turned-website would get even 10 readers. But, I, you know, we put our time and effort into it. Me and my fellow founders of Lions of Liberty put our time and effort into this thing. And, you know, now we've developed a good little readership. I didn't know if anyone would listen to this podcast. <laughs> and yet the listeners, you know, continue to come. I hope more of them keep coming. I hope you'll share this with your friends if you're listening now and get them to come on over and check out the Lions of Liberty podcast too. Hey, maybe point them to our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty podcast. Over on Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Google+. Plus. Come check out what we're doing. Because I can't predict this stuff. I don't know where this is going to go. We emphasize this a lot on the show. It's important for libertarians to continue to find new ways to communicate ideas and to continue to define those specific ideas along the way, which is what we intend to do here. It's what we intend to do at our website, lionsofliberty.com, to advance the ideas of liberty daily. So, folks, please continue to check out our podcast. Please continue to check out our website, and hey, do us a favor. If you listen, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on Stitcher. But whatever you do, please try to give us a rating and a comment. Really help up boost us up. Allow more people to see the podcast and, you know, hopefully pick up even more listeners. Get more people here in our show introduced to the ideas of liberty. And maybe some of those people will go on to find other libertarian projects like liberty.me. Like the numerous other, you know, Infathable number of libertarian websites and other projects out there. You never know what's going to be that gateway drug, and that's kind of one of our goals here, to be that gateway drug, to get someone's foot in the door, thinking differently, thinking about how we don't necessarily need a central planning solution to everything. We don't need a guy with a bullhorn, a politician, dictating how everything needs to be done. The market can figure out what needs to be done, because ultimately everything comes down to the will of the people. Not in the communists, we the people sense of the term. But the market reflects the will of the people who make certain decisions to spend their money in certain places. And that sends signals to entrepreneurs about what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. A good way to send us a signal <laughs> is to share this podcast, get more people listening. Or to go over to our website and click on one of our Amazon links. Anything you buy through Amazon, anything you would normally buy, if you go through our link over at lionsliberty.com, you know, we'll get a tiny little kickback on there at no extra cost to you. So that's how you can help use the free market to tell me we're doing a good job. Or just tell your friends about it. That's all we ask. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the very first episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast for 2014. And be sure to check back next week for another show. We'll have an interesting interview. With the professor, Carlos Shelley from Bowling Green University, who's written a book about... E al ritorno da un'impresa, che l'avvenire chiamerà gloriosa, toccava a noi di accogliervi in questa casa che è vostra, perché abitata dalla vittoria. Mussolini and economics of fascism. So be sure to tune back for that next week. And until then, folks, remember, live long... And live free.
editing and mastering is John Daugherty.